thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Chris Smith. And I'm James Titko. Coming up this week, brain implants grown in a lab wire themselves into the nervous system. Artificial intelligence joins the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And are sugar taxes actually effective ways to fight the obesity epidemic? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Up first this week, there's renewed hope for the millions of people affected by brain injuries and degenerative diseases. Scientists have successfully grafted new lab-grown brain tissue into the brains of rats and shown that the new tissue wires itself into the host brain and responds electrically to signals from elsewhere in the animal's nervous system. Although scientists have demonstrated over many years that new cells can be added to the brain, this is one of the first studies to show that the implanted tissue can grow develop a blood supply and connect itself up functionally. Neurosurgeon Isaac Chen from the University of Pennsylvania started by using human blood stem cells to grow mini-brains called organoids in his lab, which he then transplanted into recipient rats. An organoid is basically something we make in the lab that resembles the organ that it's supposed to uh, look like. So, for instance, there can be lung organoids, intestinal organoids, kidney organoids... In our case, what we're looking at were brain organoids that we form from stem cells that we can get from the blood of any human being. We give it a recipe of different growth factors and other things in the media that allow it to kind of become something that looks like a mini brain. And when you do this, you get, because brain tissue is it's a complicated tissue, it's not just nerve cells, there's a whole assemblage of different cell types in there. You get something resembling a piece of brain with all the right cell types. You get a lot of the different cell types. It's actually quite amazing the, the diversity of cell types that you are able to create. It's not a perfect replicate of the brain, but it's as good as we can do right now with the technology that we have, which is why we chose to look at this as what we transplanted. And how did you transplant it? I'm a neurosurgeon, so I've been able to train my lab to do brain surgery on rats. Um, so what we did first was we took a piece of the skull off, used simple vacuum suction to create a hole in the brain. We took an organoid and we gently laid it within that hole in the brain. And then we closed things up. So you end up with human brain tissue in this cavity you've made in the recipient rat brain. Presumably you were able to follow up these animals for a period of time afterwards to see what the tissue did. That's right. So we we went out to upwards of three months after we did the transplantation of the organoid. 
And um, we were specifically interested in looking at how the neurons of the organoid, those nerve cells, are able to integrate with the brain of the animal, both structurally as well as functionally. We did a, a variety of experiments to look at those aspects of integration. Are they actually wiring themselves in? Because that's the sort of the thing you're testing effectively, isn't it? Is this becoming a meaningful brain area that can contribute to brain function? Yes. And so that's what was really cool about the work. We were looking at whether or not things got the, the neurons got wired in in a couple different ways. We were able to use a modified virus to kind of look at connections between the organoid and the brain. So in a really cool experiment that we did, we injected a virus into the eye of the animal, and we were able to show that there was a direct uh, connection, a pathway that formed between the eye of the animal and the organoid that we had transplanted. So that gave us evidence that there was a structural connection between um, the visual system of the animal and, and, and the organoid. And, and just one, one point here, the eye is actually part of the brain. And so it was really cool to be able to see that the eye was directly connected with the organoid. The other thing we ended up doing was to stimulate the animal with different types of flashing light and other patterns of light and seeing what types of electrical responses were present in the organoid itself. And we, we found that there were very specific electrical responses that showed up in the presence of the stimulation. And so this gave us a sense that there was a functional connection between the organoid and the animal's brain as well. And presumably the reason you're interested in doing this is that human brain trauma or because of degenerative conditions, the best way to remedy that is to put new tissue back. And this is the first step really to testing if we make an engineer tissue in a dish as a replacement, can it actually be meaningfully implanted into the brain and have some prospect of surviving and contributing to brain activity? That's right. You know, our brains are not able to do a lot to repair itself after some sort of an injury, which is why patients with brain injuries and strokes and other types of conditions have uh, neurological deficits. So yes, this is start of the road to try to understand, can we create something in a lab, some sort of a tissue that resembles the brain uh, that we can then insert into the brain of a patient with a problem um, and, and be able to allow them to restore function. Rats are, are obviously not humans. They're also much smaller. And if we're talking about the, the size of a human brain and the size of a, a likely implant, you'd need to fix a damaged bit of brain. We're talking about possibly an order of magnitude or more of scale up. Do you think this will work if we were to try and scale it up in that way in a human? There's a lot that we have to figure out before we're ready to proceed with something like this in a patient. But there is a path that I can foresee where we do not necessarily need to scale up the tissue itself. There are parts of the brain where it's structured like a lot of repetitive processors. And in this case, you know, by inserting smaller clumps of tissue, you could be adding processors to the brain in very specific areas where it's been damaged. And you don't necessarily have to replace the whole cavity, let's say of a, of a stroke or an injury, a brain injury, something like that. But you could insert smaller pieces of tissue that can effectively increase the computational capacity of that particular area of the brain. And because we understand the brain more and more as a network, these smaller fixes might be able to improve the function of that brain to the point where there's recovery of function for the patient. 
Wouldn't that be amazing if they can do that? What an incredible story too. Isaac Chen there, he was uh, talking to me from the University of Pennsylvania. He just published that study in the journal Cell Stem Cell. Well, we're going to turn our eyes heavenward out to the universe at large and the question of whether we are alone out there, whether it's just us here or whether we have company. There's a global community who are dedicated to searching space for signs of aliens. They go by the moniker SETI and they work under the assumption that what we're looking for are signs of technology and those signs of technology are a proxy for alien intelligence. And the kinds of technology that they're looking at include radio transmissions, which any sensible, sophisticated civilization, bit like us, would probably make use of as a way to communicate. The search for these signals is hampered, however, by false positive results, returned from man-made radio signals which blind telescopes pointing at faraway stars. Now, though, a team at the University of Toronto have developed a machine learning algorithm capable of combing through the thousands of signals of interest which SETI telescopes return to reduce these pesky false positives, and they can even look for patterns in radio signals other algorithms would miss. I spoke with Cherry Ng and Peter Ma to hear how they've done it. Right. So machine learning approaches problems in a unique way, in the sense that it looks for patterns in the data without being instructed what the actual patterns are. So traditional algorithms are like baking a cake, right? You have a set of instructions in which you follow to execute this process. That's if you know what you want to look for. In this case, we want to look for specific kinds of signals. But for ET, we don't actually know what exactly what they're going to send us. And so what we want to do is we actually want to get the computer to decide different kinds of anomalies that are detected in our data. By using machine learning, we're casting a wider net than we have ever done before with traditional algorithms. You can think of traditional algorithms as like, oh, there's a preset conditions of things that I exactly want to look for and has to meet exactly to register as a hit or register as a positive, potentially positive event. But for machine learning, it makes none of those assumptions and it just makes these decisions based on the data it has seen. And we've trained it on you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of examples such that when it does look at this data, it can make decisions based on what's actually out there. So in terms of how much laborious work, how many hours you're able to save as a result of this new method? Are we talking order of magnitude more efficient? For my algorithm, it runs almost twice as fast as it takes to observe. So if it takes, in other words, if it takes 30 minutes to observe, it takes like 15 minutes to process or like 18 minutes-ish to process the actual data. The classical algorithm, or what we call TurboSETI, takes, at least by the time when I was writing this paper, took like almost an hour to run through the same piece of data. So it is significantly faster. Peter's machine learning algorithm is a lot faster. We were able to process the entire 800 stars data set in like two weeks, right? And with very modest computing resources. So indeed, one huge advantage of the machine learning algorithm is that we can search a much larger parameter space than what a traditional algorithm might be able to do, just because it's so much more efficient. And I know this is kind of not your guys' area necessarily, but indulge me a bit. What's the protocol for if we find some radio signal from space? If all this work you know, bears some fruit and we find something that isn't man-made, what then? 
Yeah, I think what people say, an extraordinary claim requires extraordinary evidence. If we do find something interesting, like in this case, the first most important thing is to sort of confirm it, to be really sure that it is a genuine signal. And the only way to find out is by re-observing and re-detecting it. Also with um, different telescopes by involving other, other scientists to see if we can independently confirm these signals. And then I, I suppose try to extract as much information from the data we have as possible. Is it from an exoplanet? Uh, can we find out about the radio velocity or any uh, other information? And then if we're really sure, then like, I think it requires international collaboration to, to try and come up with a coherent plan of how to establish any communication. Exciting stuff, eh? That's Cherry Ng and Peter Ma, who, by the way, was an undergraduate while he wrote that paper. That work just came out in Nature Astronomy. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with James Titko. And still to come, are sugar taxes a viable option for avoiding obesity? We'll find out. But first, in the great outdoors, the Big Garden Birdwatch is an RSPB-led initiative to track the distribution and the population of our bird numbers. It's the UK's biggest piece of wildlife citizen science and it happened just last weekend. Twitchers across the country were asked to tot up how many birds and of what species they'd spotted over a one-hour period. The initiative first began, actually, back in 1979. It was a feature on the children's TV show Blue Peter, fondly remembered by many. It's since grown enormously in popularity, though, and last year some 700,000 people across the UK took part, and they collectively counted more than 11 million bird sightings. Well, Will Tingle and our own appropriately named James Titko have joined in this year too, and here's how they got on. I'm quietly confident today, James, about our chances. Yeah, me too. I'm sure you've noticed walking through and around our offices that have been some very interesting birds over my time here, and it's the right sort well, of day. We got straight away. Straight away, we've got a magpie. Two magpies. It's the right time of day, it's the right conditions, it's very clear and quite quiet. I think we've got a genuine chance of seeing some very interesting birds today. What's all this, um, what's all the data used for? That's a great question, James, and one that I don't think I'm entirely qualified to answer. However, the person who would be qualified to answer would be the RSPB's Richard Morris, who I spoke to earlier. We've seen big increases in great tits and goldfinches over the last decade and, and for great tits since we began in 79. But overall, we've lost 38 million birds from UK skies over the last 50 years. And something like the house sparrow, say, so that comes pretty much top and has done for the last 19 years. So on the face of it, it would seem to be doing well. But, you know, actually, the data shows us that it's declined by 
57% since we started. So in those situations, it gives us an idea of where species, you know, might need help and, um, you know, what we might be able to do and as individuals as well to, to help those birds uh, and the numbers recover. And a lot of people now sort of migrating towards cities, more urban areas where perhaps there's less bird life than, say, out in the country. What do you say to the people that live in urban areas that might think it's, there's no reason to participate in? The thing is with the with the bird watch, you you don't need a garden to take part. I mean, you can do it in a park, you can do it in a green space from your balcony. I was down at my local canal yesterday, so you don't need to be in the countryside or you know have a large garden to take part. And and all the data is helpful to us, even if you don't see anything during your hour. Put together with everybody else's results, it helps us to get a, a really good snapshot. There we go. We're kicking off strong. Got a couple of blue tits up there. Where? Oh yeah, I see them now. Lovely. A stalwart yeah. of the Garden Watch survey. Oh, it's a blackbird. A blackbird, James. We're kicking it up a notch. <laughs> Very exciting. Two blackbirds. Three! I don't know about you, but my heart is going. <laughs> Again, I'm hearing a lot. I'm not seeing a lot. Oh, I can, I can see it on the tree. Is it landed? I can see it on the tree well over there. Yes! <laughs> that counts, right? Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. our garden. Is it well? Come on. <laughs> I can see it. We'll take it. Oh, is that a wren? It is. I cannot believe this. James has just gone inside and there's a buzzard. Are there any other things that people can do with their gardens to improve the quality of their birds and their bird populations? There are lots of simple things you can do if you have a garden yourself, from putting some bird food out, so feeding stations and water as well. Important to remember that cleaning and hygiene is really important. So if you are feeding birds, then make sure that the, the feeders are clean regularly and there's uh, fresh water going out daily. And that helps stop the spread of diseases that we know can impact some species. Also, you know, kind of leaving scrubby areas in your garden is great for, for nesting, roosting. And giving birds shelter and cover from the weather as well. Things like leaving your grass a bit longer in some places. Really good for insects, which source of food for birds as well. Not using insecticides and things like wildlife, friendly planting. These are all simple things you can do and can make a real benefit for the birds and, and bring more nature into your garden as well. One of the things says that the bird watch is good for us as well as for wildlife. Getting out into nature and, and connecting with the nature on your doorstep is really good for mental health and, and well-being. We did a, a YouGov survey as part of this uh, year's Birdwatch, and it showed that from the people we asked, nine out of ten people agreed that listening to birdsong, going out and watching birds benefited their mental health and well-being. So really positive impacts for, for people too, to get out there and enjoy the nature that's on their doorstep. Do you feel any less stressed at the moment right now, James? Yeah, I'd say so. It's nice take a take a break. I mean, I'm a big believer anyway in getting out in nature if you're feeling a bit low. So, absolutely. Happy to be here. Well, we end today on three blue tits, three jackdaws, three blackbirds, a buzzard, a wren, and a robin. It's not quite the goldfinches and bullfinches that we've seen here in days gone by, but not bad. Not bad for an hour in January. So, how do you think today went? I was delighted, actually, with our haul. What was it, about four or five different species? I'm well happy with that. Good. And I hope everyone had equal success or equal happiness at their success <laughs> when they did theirs at home. 
one of the great things about the big garden bird watch is that it's for everybody you don't need to be a bird expert to take part but it can be a great introduction to the species that are that are there that you you know you might perhaps not notice until you sit down for an hour and, and just start to look around you and the more that you do it and get out in nature and start to appreciate what is there the greater the connection is and uh, and just being out in the fresh air taking notice of what's around you has a really positive impact and is a nice escape say from day-to-day things that you know you have to deal with all the time <laughs> Thank you very much to the RSPB's Richard Morris there. James was out birdwatching with Will Tingle. Now, if you've not logged your list of birds that you've spotted with the RSPB yet, you have until the 19th of February to do so, and you can do it on their website. Now, according to the 2021 Health Survey for England, almost three quarters of UK adults are now judged overweight or obese, with obesity rates doubling in the last 30 years. Now, apart from this being an alarming trend in its own right, the evidence is that young children are also affected and roughly a third of 10 to 11-year-olds are overweight or obese as well. And as they grow up, these children are very likely to remain overweight, which will add to the existing prevalence of obesity in our population. This is the biggest risk factor for conditions like diabetes and also heart disease, which are now costing our health service billions to treat and manage every year. Sugar consumption has been blamed as a major culprit and most teenagers are typically consuming over 70 grams of refined sugars every day. That's double the recommended amount. Most of the intake is coming from sugar-sweetened drinks and this is what's prompted the government to introduce a sugar tax, that's back in 2018, to penalise manufacturers based on how much sugar they put in their beverages. So has this intervention worked? Well, Jean Adams from the Cambridge MRC Epidemiology Unit has been looking at the impact on school-aged children. She's analysed data from the National Child Measurement Programme on over one million children in reception. That's four to five-year-olds and year six. That's 10 to 11-year-olds. The introduction of the sugar tax, she's found, was associated with an 8% relative reduction in obesity levels in year six girls. This is equivalent to preventing 5,234 cases of obesity per year in this group. The reductions were greatest in girls, whose schools were in deprived areas where children are known to consume the largest amount of sugary drinks. Surprisingly, boys, though, showed no change in obesity rates. So, Jean, the data suggests that, on some level, the sugar tax is working. So we have about 50 countries or territories around the world now have a tax on uh, soft drinks or sugary drinks. And there is now quite a lot of evidence that um, they lead to reductions in purchasing and consumption of the drinks that are taxed. There's less data so far on uh, impacts on kind of hard health outcomes. So this study that we've done on obesity in children is kind of leading the way on there. Okay, so the signs are good. The tax is making a difference. But how do you know for sure that it's the sugar tax doing this and not other things, messaging, education? Yeah, that's a a really good question. And it is really difficult to untangle these things. It's very difficult to get clear signals from this sort of policy evaluation where we're looking in in the real world rather than doing controlled trials. And I I guess there's kind of a number of ways to think about that. And, And one might be that the messaging and the education is kind of part of what the tax is. So 
when we introduce a tax that comes along with a, a lot of discussion in the media um, and other places about why is the government taxing soft drinks? Well, that's because they think they're not very good for you. And so we can kind of think of that whole package of measures as part of what the tax is. But also the, the method that we've uh, used where we look at trends over time and how those change in relation to when the tax was implemented, like a, a real problem with that sort of method is it is vulnerable to other things happening. So we can't say for absolute certain tax has led to the change in obesity levels that we see, but we can say that it's part of a jigsaw of, of lots of different pieces of emerging evidence. So we saw that coincident with the the tax coming in, we saw changes in the amount of sugar that was in drinks, and that reflects that uh, the tax encouraged manufacturers to reduce the sugar in their drinks. And we also saw decreases in purchasing of sugar from drinks. So all these things together make us think that there is a, a story to be told. Sure. Just to rhyme, rewind back a bit slightly, have you got numbers to put on this as, as to how exactly important the tax was in, in reducing sugar intake in kids? We have not yet looked at sugar intake in totality. What we see, we've looked at purchasing of um, drinks in households and we see a reduction there in, in the kind of 5% range. And is it affecting everyone the same? Boys, girls, any difference there? So in, in terms of this study where we looked at obesity in children, we studied both children coming into school in reception year and in year six when they leave primary school. And we see an effect just in the year six children. And in fact, that effect is specific to girls, not boys, and to girls living in more socially and economically challenging circumstances. I mean, perhaps you don't have the answer for me right now, but could you speculate as to, as to why you're seeing that difference? Yeah, we don't know the answer to that. And this data uh, doesn't tell us. So it really is speculation. But I guess we all know that we live in society where girls and boys experience life differently. So girls may be primed to be more responsive to messages about what they're eating, what they look like. Boys might be more primed to messaging about what it is to be good at sport and how energy drinks play into that. And so the, the prime energy drink frenzy <laughs> might be fueling this. Well, Jean Adams from the Cambridge MRC Epidemiology Unit, thanks very much for coming in. That work has just been published in PLOS Medicine. And that is where we must leave it. Thank you very much for listening. And of course, if you like this programme and would like to support what we're doing, do please consider signing up to become a donor, either on a one-off or regular basis. Every little helps and we're extremely grateful for your support. You can do that at nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. He's James Titko. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.